0: Every word that you
1: wrote Your style is lovely and atrocious Let me find all the reasons It was moving, it was horrible Fuck your book This week's episode of Fuck Your Book is brought to you by Difficult to pronounce words Really? Yes When the anemone slips past the isthmus near the rural Welsh town of Mistswift, consult your rhinolaryngologist. As a corollary, certain inchoate truths may shock with their pulchritude. The symphrophiliac penguins of Worcester tend also to get off on onomatopoeia. Fuck you, Michael. Everything
0: you said was so true. (laughs) I just, I... I just wanted to be honest with this week's...
1: Yeah, you just want to embarrass me in front of all my, two, did, my two friends. You did a
0: very good job. Thank you. Surprisingly, I I was... I, I mean, some of them, you you were... You, you fudged a little. It's a
1: miss with you.
0: It's me. Uh, me. In-choat-truths.
1: Is that how you say it? It is not. Oh. But, I said inchoate. Yeah, kind of... I, know, I didn't right. say inchoate.
0: I know, but I wanted you to. All right, well... In-choat-truths. Okay, so uh hi everyone hello oh, wow. are you everyone that's a depressing <laughs> thought um i'm michael
1: and i'm cynthia and
0: we are fuck your book fuck
1: your book Fuck
0: your book. uh we love we hated everywhere, everywhere in, that, that you did roll. uh that's fine so um what are we we are a podcast as i think you can tell um we, we are we speak through pods <laughs> <laughs> we cast through the pods.
1: Into the sound and the clouds.
0: And uh, we use the, we, we spot your fi, but we don't. we don't. We don't. We don't. Remember
1: when I said we were on Spotify and we absolutely aren't? We're not. We, no, we are.
0: We are, but like one in episode. In a weird way. In yeah, one episode. And like, it's not, it's like titled Fuck Your Book. I don't know. With like I don't know how it got Cynthia there. Tolson and maybe my name. I, I don't know. What but if it's
1: like our doppelgangers? Regardless. Yeah. Okay.
0: Irregardless, which is a word that is real now. Um, and it means the same thing as regardless. So, strange. Um, well, the OED is a son of a bitch. But what, <laughs> <laughs> what we do is we talk about books. Um, pretty much only books thus far, though. Yeah, we, we have, will...
1: we should branch out soon. Yeah,
0: we will do, we will do other things. Coming
1: up on the big one zero episodes. Which,
0: which episode is 10? this? 10, this what? is going to be 9. This is going to be 9? Oh my yeah. god. Oh my god.
1: We got a special surprise.
0: Special, it is a tasty, tasty surprise. It's a taste of a little morse. Mm, so good. <laughs> um, but the way that we do this, we do this in a somewhat unique way if you're new. Unique New York, unique New York, unique New York, unique New
1: I'm not doing it. You already gave me a thing.
0: Do it. up uh, fine. <laughs> That's true. That is accurate. Um, so say I brought in, I don't know, Gravity's Rainbow. You
1: brought in, I don't know, Gravity's, Gravity's Rainbow. Rainbow.
0: That's the title of a very yes, weird Thomas novel. Thomas Pynchon. No, I don't know Gravity's Rainbow. It's the title oh. of the very, <laughs> very strange novel. It's like the girl by who
1: never read Noam Chomsky. Pinnis
0: Thompson.
1: <laughs> Goodbye. I need to go now.
0: Penis. That really was very penis. Fun. Yeah, it sounded like penis and I didn't mean it like that. But
1: now I didn't. I don't think you needed to point out that it sounded like penis. I meant I think.
0: it. I meant it the whole time and then we were infinite. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so say I brought it in, and I did it just a shit job. After I was done pitching this book to Cynthia, probably
1: before you were even done.
0: At some point in the course of our speakings, um, we would bestow each other commas. Now the comma point system patent pending, pending patent pan, pandas, just like Coca Cola. Um, does not have a patent because they would have to give up their secret. Yes, live long and prosper. Um, live the truth, love the truth um
1: <laughs> we need to get past that episode four hurdle <laughs> was, that, was that actually episode i four? think so
0: i don't i don't remember what episode was any episode but the important thing is so if you really really loved it you would say
1: fuck your book
0: i.e a comma and if you really really hated it you would say fuck your book i.e no comma Thus, the Comma Point system was born. Um, if you're not new to this podcast, which I assume you're not because- Because my,
1: we have two listeners. Because it's
0: mostly us listening and I've stopped listening long ago. Yeah. Just kidding. I listen. Don't yell at me, guys. Um, we, we know this information, but just in case there happens to be a new person who is late to the party but wants to, wants to join in, we have to explain It's this.
1: good to get the system down.
0: Now, um, so now that you know who So we're was,
1: at five and five right now. And we had a guest last episode who has one, so that means that Mr. John Strecke,r might come back someday. He's on probation. He's on probes.
0: <laughs> like alien probes. Yeah,
1: he's just sitting on probes. Not yet. Anyway, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. So, um, also, if you're not new, if you're if oh, you're by not- the way,
0: wait, 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 important information. We got to 100 subscribers.
1: Oh, right. Holy fuck, guys. That's more than people have left reviews, though.
0: Yes. But we got 100 subscri- yeah. subscribers. That's amazing. Next big hurdle, 200.
1: Next big hurdle, 110.
0: Yeah. <laughs> We've been at 101 since, like, <laughs> ever now. But,
1: um, but yeah, yeah, so tell your friends. Tell your people that read things and people that don't read things to get them to read things. Tell your weird aunts and uncles. Tell your parents if they're cool.
0: And even if they're not...
1: I like how much you had to prepare for that little note jump. No, so it's good. not about
0: the note jump. I was doing the John Ralphio hand motion. Okay. It was old John Ralphio all gotcha. the time. Ben
1: Schwartz, yeah. shout out.
0: Shout out Ben um, Schwartz. That was a good comedy We saw show.
1: him and Thomas Middleditch. Middleditch and Tommy Schwartz. Mids live. It was great. We'll talk about that later. Um, for now, tell your friends about this here podcast. Do a little sum sum for us, as we do for you. Um.
0: So... We usually lay out, like, a contest or a prize if you comment on when we post this. So we're going to do that this time. But there's a caveat. You cannot be related to us, married to us, married to someone who is related to us, or dating us.
1: That is our whole listener I know.
0: I know. But if you're not one of those things... Okay, you you just can't be directly related. You can't be a parent to us or or our spouses. Okay, gotcha. Uh, And it's fair... And I, I love that you guys do comment, and to all the people who I'm referring to, thank you for being our listeners. We love you. Please continue to comment. Give us hope. Yes. But, that being said, we're trying to spread out the joy, and so we want someone else to have the chance to get it. So what should we, what should we give them as a, as a gift this time?
1: Oh, man. Um, I don't know.
0: How about a three-week-in-a-row shout-out? Jesus.
1: Yes. Is that really, like, good?
0: I mean, if if they care enough, yes, you get you get your name on this podcast for three weeks.
1: And we'll how about we'll read them a haiku that we write.
0: We'll write yeah. you a haiku. Sh- sure. Why don't we do something more interesting? Like because that's funny. It's a little played out. Why don't we do a sonnet?
1: All right. Petrarch- fine. Shakespeare. Petrarch- Shakespeare. No
0: Petrarchan sonnet. All right. Petrarch, (laughs) Was that the joke you were going to make? Yes. Cynthia will write you a Petrarchian song. I
1: don't even know what that is. Well, you'll find
0: out. It's very, the internet is a wonderful resource for this. Okay. But like, share, subscribe, you know.
1: Yes. Please just tell people to listen and please leave a review on iTunes. That helps, helps with whatever, I guess. I don't know. We're trying. We're like, you know, paying for SoundCloud. Yeah. It's not like we're
0: trying to monetize this because like.
1: Like, tell your friends, but we don't have business cards, so just go make your own. Go print make out-
0: our business Print cards. out a piece
1: of paper, write fuck your book on it. You should definitely make iTunes. us a Kickstarter, too. Yeah, and then, like, you know, give a little back.
0: And a GoFundMe. We give
1: so much to you. So much. So much.
0: So, so much. So, um, the next thing that we have to do is a, is a Cynthia Tolson special.
1: Oh, um, I do this sometimes at work. Because uh, if you know me in human real life, you know that most of the time I'm just like beep bopping around making weird sounds and like I'll come around the corner and be like Whoo! Um, that wasn't like a fart noise. Like I'll do that with my mouth. Um, Everyone knew
0: that that was with your mouth. Yeah. It sounded like it was with your
1: mouth. <laughs> um, so Michael, make, just make up a, a word or a name of you know a person or thing just based on how your mouth feels
0: Complish. nice nice and
1: dear and fire <laughs> that's like an Icelandic man.
0: <laughs> alright
1: and that's that segment try it with your friends it's a new segment we're trying out um
0: slips
1: slips sli- plums
0: plums I feel in my plums alright okay so cool! That um, was fun.
1: Uh, <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Yeah.
0: So now it's time for me to do my book. Um, yeah. So let's talk briefly before we do about what this episode's theme is.
1: Cool. So yeah.
0: Ongoingly, we are gonna we're we're starting up a favorite books
1: series series.
0: So this is gonna pretty much take us through the end of summer, which you know was one show for us because we were pretty inconsistent. <laughs> but um,
1: well, hey. I'm going to have some more free time. I doubt it. Yeah, that's true.
0: Um, But we're, we're going to do this uh, favorite book series where, as everyone knows when you're asked, what's your favorite book? You're like, I don't know. Is it this one? No, it's this one. And most likely you're just going to say the book that you're reading right now because like that's life. Yes. But um, so we're trying to be a little bit more broad, but specific, broad, but specific, broad, but specific. And then we were
1: infinite. All right.
0: Um, uh, So what we're doing this time is favorite books, classics. Classics. So um, by classics.
1: Michael, how how did you define a classic?
0: It would be creepy if you fucked it.
1: (laughs) Meaning if you had sex with a person that was born in the year it was written. It would be creepy. It would be creepy, right. And
0: I think both of our books really live that out. Don't tell them you're yeah. <laughs> but mine, I think that if either of us had sex with someone who was born in this year, it would be legitimately weird. Something
1: Yeah, either like they
0: would be super rich, most likely. Yeah. And we would be super sad. Uh, so, I, that's what I mean. Or there's
1: some, like, necrophilia happening, so... <laughs> yes,
0: uh, the author of this book has sadly passed away. Yeah. But, um, let's, let's, so let's go to mine. We're gonna do mine first, and then we'll All do right, yours. All right, do it. So, the book I'm, I brought in is, uh, Titus Grown by Mervyn Peak and...
1: Titus Groan. My <laughs> name,
0: Titus <laughs> It was written in nineteen forty six, so creepy, creepy if I fucked it. Yeah. Real creepy. Um, and it's the first in three books written by Mervin Peake, set in this world. Um but first some some backgroundy stuff. Um Mervyn Peake was an illustrator, writer, and poet. He died young, tragically, after a long battle with early onset dementia. Oh damn. Um, yeah, so he was a uh he was a war illustrator during World War Two. After he got uh, so, what he would do is he kind of did propaganda illustrations for the British Army and gotcha. uh, like illustrations of the industry. But he was a really amazing. If you know, like, kind of how Edward Gorey, yeah, yeah, it, it's similar illustrations to that pen and ink mostly when it when it comes to his own stuff. And then. Um, while he was fighting in World War II and doing that, he started working on Titus Grown, which came out in 46, the year after the war ended. Um, and so just for comparison, uh, of other fantasy novels, because this is in some ways, it's a fantasy novel, I guess. It's kind of complicated. We'll get to it. But, um, the Lord of the Rings novels were published in the mid fifties from July 54 to October 55. And then the three other literary fantasy novels that came up came out in the 20th century before Titus Grown were uh The Hobbit in 37, The King of Elfland's Daughter in 24 by Lord Dunsany and The Worm of Ouroboros, which is another Absolutely
1: hard shocked you didn't do The Hobbit.
0: Um, yeah, well, I wanted to do something uh, a little bit different uh but also really important and worth our I the main reason I did it is because I want more people to read this book because this book is hmm. bomb.
1: Because so, I have not heard of it. That's and kind I was of the like, point. Is it a classic? Yes. If so, I haven't heard of it,
0: well, very much so. <laughs> so um, these novels are like legitimately weird. Uh, they mix fantasy, which by fantasy it literally is just referring to the fact that it doesn't exist in this world. Okay, it's a different so world. So it's not
1: like a high fan. There's no like. There's
0: no magic. It's just really. weird. It's just a different place. Okay. Um, uh, stately court intrigue, surrealist elements, biting satire, a lot of humor, and just, like, gorgeous descriptive language. Um, and there are very few novels, the one that I noted in my notes, that's similar to this in its, like, scope and difference from any other novel out there and lack of general population knowledge, knowledge is a Little Big by John Crowley. Um hmm. and it's like so idiosyncratic and amazing and it has a very small following outside of writers and twentieth century postmodernists and fantasists and everybody. Um so the way that I kind of I highlighted this, it's the Asthetes Fantasy series. So it's The not- Ass Thieves? The Asthetes.
1: <laughs> the Ass
0: Thieves. It's the Ass Thieves Fantasy it's the Series.
1: Booty grabbing- Um fantasy series. And so
0: part of the reason that this novel is so cool is it's like near impossible to categorize. And its, impar- its impact is like hard to figure simply. So with something like Lord of the Rings, it's really easy to see how it's impacted world literature. Uh, after it came out in the 50s, there was a spate of copycats. Really for decades until the 90s. the most- Yeah, you
1: you talked about this when you did uh Eddings. Yes, right. um,
0: and the his brand of heroic fantasy, um, which takes from like mythology and Old Norse legends and kind of that kind of like creation myth stuff, mm-hmm. uh, that fantasy was an oppressive force in English language fantastic literature. Um, so it's really easy to kind of see where that goes. But with Titus Grown and Gormenghast, which are the two main novels in this series it's a little harder uh but what uh, what's so cool about them is uh in a way without really meaning to peak created a second strand of english slash american fantasy before there was a first so before lord of the rings came out before this monolith of the fantastic was out there was this quiet ill-defined strange kind of fantasy Mm. and um in a similar way so when you when a lot of fantasists talk about their like grandfather being H.P. Lovecraft it's hard to do because while Lovecraft is important and amazing and I talked about him an episode yeah. or two ago um he was a pulp writer and he wrote pulp fiction and I love pulp fiction there's nothing against it he's important and whatever but it's not literary fiction so for to for a, a a real foundation to build your genre on Lovecraft doesn't work. If you're trying to hew towards the literary, you basically in the fifties and forties only had Tolkien except peak. So um, peak allows, allows and allowed writers to draw from a different literary fantasy um, other than like Fritz Lieber and uh, Howard and a couple others that are still really pulp. So whatever. Um, And What's so interesting about Peak particularly is that even contemporary fantasists who write in the Tolkien genre, the best example for you, Cynthia, would be a Germ, George R. R. Martin, mm-hmm. who you read and watch the TV show. Correct. Um, and if you're a close reader will notice that there is a house peak in it, um, named after Mervyn Peak, and the castle that they reside in is called Starpike, which is named after the main character of the series named Steerpike. And Gurm is a huge follower of Peak. But, like, not just in, oh, he made a reference to it. What these books are about is a gigantic, gothic, crumbling pile in the middle of nowhere. With it's the way that I describe it is like a, a much weirder Downton Abbey. Okay. So it's about the people who live in this castle. And the novel, the first novel, Titus Grown, starts when the main character, Titus, is born. So he's an infant throughout the entire first novel, (laughs) which is really funny, and plays almost no role. And in the second novel, he's 7 to 17, and it's about him kind of taking back his place and then deciding he doesn't want it. It's a very post-war novel. And that's what makes it so cool, is that it doesn't exist within literary fantasy, but it is the basis for all contemporary literary fantasy in the English-speaking world. Every every major fantasist that doesn't write like Brandon Sanderson or like obviously Tolkien-esque fantasy is drawing directly from Peak, because what Peak showed is that you don't have to do Tolkien. Even if you... So the, like, the thing about it, and here's where I'm going to make a caveat to what I'm talking about to some extent. Every person who writes with magic or in a different world that doesn't have science fiction in it or any other elves or whatever, anybody who's doing it in any language, for the most part, is is completely going to be defined by their relation to Tolkien.
1: A Tolkien copy. Yeah. Or, well, or not. Yeah, yeah. it's,
0: it's their relation to their distance, really. Yeah, okay. So there are some people who are closer, there are some people who are farther away. The further you get, the more consciously you're being like, I don't want to be like him. Right. And that's true. And every writer of fantasy kind of has to deal with that. He's the, like, lodestone. He's the giant signpost that everyone has to look at.
1: Well, ha- I, I know I always, like, bring it back to music, but that's what I'm most familiar with. But it's, like, after Beethoven's symphonies, nobody wrote a symphony for, like, ever because it was, like, we can't, we can't do that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, with this, it's kind of, like, Imagine if Beethoven wrote a symphony and then everyone wrote symphonies.
1: Yeah. Well, and, yeah.
0: Yeah. And everyone wrote symphonies and the symphonies, every symphony is defined exactly by its distance or closeness to Beethoven. Right. And people wrote symphonies way better than Beethoven did, but it's never going to be outside of Beethoven yeah. because they're using the same themes that Beethoven used. Right. So you can't say that it's better because it's not really because Beethoven invented everything. <laughs> That's what Tolkien is in fantasy, <laughs> except for peak. Okay, Peak cool. is the only place that you can go outside of Tolkien and really be outside of Tolkien. He's like a haven for writers. So every major writer who writes outside of the like very st- stiltifying Tolkien sphere knows Peak loves Peak and is is looks to Peak for inspiration. And some of the ones that I brought in, I mean, Neil Gaiman is a really obvious person, mm-hmm. even though, and that's what's great about the influence of Peak is like, even though Peak and Gaiman have very little to do with each other in terms of, like, the words that they write, um, Peak is the reason Gaiman can do what he does. Right. And that's true for Susanna Clarke, who wrote uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. It's true for Michael Moorcock, specifically, who is, Cynthia's smiling because the, his name has cock in it, but... Uh, is the most important British fantasist aside from Tolkien and Peake. Uh, he was actually a friend of an older Mervyn Peake back in the day. Is before.
1: he the most cock?
0: He is <laughs> the highest level of cock one can have. <laughs> but everyone, like, I would say Kelly Link, absolutely, uh, literally everybody who writes in the fantastic uh, outside of the sphere of Tolkien, trying to be able for sure, re- you need Peake to do that. And it's a, he's massively underread for the quality of his writing. And I think part of that is that the series never really finished. He, the third book that he came out with in his lifetime, which was the last book that he was able to publish, uh, kind of shows, in my opinion, like the start of his dementia. It isn't as tight as the other books. It doesn't work in the same way. It's kind of messy and weird and doesn't have the same tone. Like, the first two books, Gormenghast and Titus Grown, are just perfect. They're weird and fucked up and, like, funny. They're so funny consistently and very themselves. And then the third one, Titus Alone, just doesn't really make sense in the, like, uh, sitting next to the other two kind of a sci-fi novel but not really and like the character kind of completely changes so i think you can read it as a duology and i think that it's best to that the first two books kind of just sit by themselves um but for most people the knowledge that it never really completed he was working on a fourth novel before he just lost his ability to write at all um that kind of draws them away from it it also kind of got lost to the sands of time and only really concerted readers
1: like Sands through the hourglass and then we were so infinite. are the days of our lives
0: yeah and <laughs> i think also the fact that this came out before tolkien and then tolkien just took a big fucking shit on everything made it very difficult for it to get the audience that it deserves that being said once again if you are a writer of fantasy or a serious reader of anything specifically 20th century literature this is something you need to read it's gorgeous I'm not going to read from it because I'll give you a chance to experience it without me. But it is just stunning architectural writing. He was a poet and it's very clear and he's a visual artist and it's very clear and it all comes through in the way that he writes because it's just unlike anything else. So this is a classic in its vast, enormous influence. I think arguably it has as much influence as anything Tolkien ever wrote because just Just as opposed to Tolkien, it is the lone sentinel standing inside literary fantasy opposing the monolithic Tolkien presence. And I think that's an amazing thing. And once again, if I had to choose which one I liked more, that'd be tough. Because (laughs) Tolkien... I didn't read Mervyn Peake when I was a little kid. And I didn't lived with...
1: That's a sentimental... Yeah.
0: And I think Tolkien's novel the lord of the rings is arguably the best and most important novel of the 20th century so but i think mervyn peak's influence is cemented in i don't think we would have the fantasy that we all like now we definitely wouldn't have game of thrones we definitely wouldn't have any of like this literary explosion of fantasy and all these shows and stuff without peak's brilliance mm-hmm. and uh so and if you ever read a book that's centered around a castle or a building that's kind of decomposing and it's good it, that's a Mervyn peak
1: yeah well, we talked a little bit about that when we talked about gothic right the gothic yeah. style of the like crumbling castle
0: there's there's definitely that um yeah. but Peak really codified it in Gorman yes. Cool. and uh uh I can't remember the name of the what's the one that got like destroyed by dragon fire in Westeros. Harrenhold. You know yeah. in the show it's where uh where Arya everybody meets, is. Where Arya yeah, it's where Arya meets um Tywin Lannister and is his cupbearer. Oh. Remember? It's like this gross black decomposing castle. Yeah. That's 100% a hundred percent a Gormangast reference. Gotcha. And it's like it's one of the many. Like every cat like most of the if you notice in the early books most of the action takes place in these gigantic castles mm-hmm. that have like a city around them and like the relation between, king's landing yeah king's, landing. The, yeah, king's yeah. landing or uh or winterfell and like Hall later and all of these places are germ takes from what uh, Peak did constantly, and cool. it's very clear throughout his novels how big of an influence, and arguably more of an influence than Tolkien, because there's no house Tolkien, <laughs> That's with <true>. Castle Frodo. <laughs> like it's just you can't do it. It's like Peak is such an influence. That's, yeah, you cool. there's there isn't like he like has some references to Robert Jordan, but Robert Jordan isn't an influence. They worked at the same they were working at the same time in the nineties. Okay. so this is like a, a
1: so you would really you would say that. George R. R. Martin isn't influenced by Tolkien.
0: No, I, I would say he is, of course. Yeah. It's, okay. hundred uh, yeah. percent. I would just say like the actual writing of it is more it's influenced. More peak. That it has more. I mean, I mean that in a complimentary way because the like project of Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire. to yeah. be Precise. The project of it is anti-Tolkienism. It's his his whole project is like let me deconstruct the heroic tale of that tolkien wrote in and show what it would actually mean to have this like good versus evil fight it's not actually that it's like this fucked up giant war with like maybe an environmental disaster that's unwinnable at the top of it and but that's not he doesn't write like tolkien does because he doesn't a he doesn't have the education so tolkien was a professor of linguistics and those, Damn,
1: slamming on Gurm, Michael. But
0: it's not the same. Like
1: He listens. I lo- I'm so sorry, Gurm. I
0: love Gurm. <laughs> I love Gurm to death. I don't have the education to write like Tolkien does. Tolkien is a ludicrous genius. When don't
1: it, you proclaim your academic prowess constant, everywhere you go?
0: Constantly. <laughs> but... Tolkien was he was a linguist and he wrote like a linguist because it's all about the language not even English it's mostly about the other languages mm-hmm. so it's really hard to write like Tolkien very few clones even get close um, but what Gurm is really good at is these detailed descriptions of these nobody people of these people often who mean very little in the scope of the story who are just there and that's where Peek excels and that's what he taught us in the fantasy community. And uh, the last thing uh, about Gurm's project, uh, and this is a total aside, but it's important for us to talk about, is the fact that it is an impossible thing that he's trying to do, and everyone should give some slack because the end- ending's going to suck. <laughs> it has to. It fundamentally has to suck. Yeah. Because... He's his whole project is anti-Tolkienism, which means that if he was going to do it correctly, he would have just written the same thing Joe Abercrombie wrote in the like in the first Law series, which ends super shitty. And you're like, oh, fuck. All of the people I liked are terrible. And like the like victory is totally pyrrhic because all of the good people don't exist and the bad people won. This is awful. So and he can't do that. Because he's fallen in love with his characters, and so have we. And he knows if he kills Jon Snow again, and if he kills Tyrion, and if he kills all the characters that we love and now have plot armor, then we're going to fucking riot, and it's going to be terrible. So he had to give up his project halfway through and be like, okay, I'm writing real fantasy now, ha ha. Yeah. But the reason we like it is because it's not that. Like, so you don't do you n- think
1: if... um the series was completed earlier than, like, it gained this huge public acclaim, it would have ended differently?
0: No, because I don't think he cares what we think. I think he fell in love. Ah. So, if he was gonna be true to his project, th- oh, well, I mean, it's it, the question is, like, is it just a Tolkien an anti-Tolkien thing, or is he also doing, like, a War of the Roses pastiche? So if he's doing War of the Roses, then you would have uh I mean, you would have Tyrion very briefly becoming king and then someone coming, like, Danny, coming from uh, across the ocean and taking over and winning and then giving birth to Henry VIII. Um, (laughs) uh, uh, Tyrion being Richard III there for all of the people, you know. He's horribly... Whatever, you, you get it. All right, so, Michael. But, uh, but that's not what he's doing. He's just using the War of the Roses as a kind of a template. He's doing anti-Tolkienism. So if he, w- if he really wanted to, to end it the way he started it, he had two options. First, everyone dies and the White Walkers win. And that would be the balls out best ending that he could do if he's trying to keep to his project. But two, if he's not trying to keep to his project, then there's only one person who could possibly sit on the Iron Throne And that is Cersei. Cersei is the only one suited to the world in which they live. Tyrion is Mm -hmm. not. Danny definitely isn't.
1: Because the characters we like are too good.
0: Yes. All of them have some fundamental goodness. And it has been proven from the get-go that that is a liability. Mm -hmm. And once people start getting their comeuppance, you stop being anti-Tolkien. You start being just another Tolkien story because Tolkien had bad shit happen and then it got all turned out well right so when he says the ending will be bittersweet that means nothing because there's no such thing it's either a a happy ending or a sad ending realistically Mm -hmm. either all of our characters are dead or some of them are dead but the really important ones survive if Tyrion dies I'll be okay if Tyrion (laughs) doesn't die then he then he fell in love and he failed his own project Mm. but that's okay because who gives a shit whether or not you succeed or fail? It's all about what you want to write. And if it were me and I were him, I'd just write it so all the good guys win. Because it's clear that's what he wants. Yeah. it's clear that's what everyone wants. And yeah. like we'll all complain about it, but deep down we'll like
1: we'll be happy. With you want to know Tyrion yeah.
0: survives and yeah. john and Danny have cute little incest babies. Oh my god! It's, and yeah, and like that's what we want. Yeah. So it's a really hard question. But I feel for the guy because you either have to be like Mark Lawrence and Joe Abercrombie where you're just going to like cut the head off of the snake and just be done with it and not give a shit about your characters, not fall in love, let them die.
1: First book he did.
0: Well, yeah. And you can see that first <laughs> yeah. three because yeah. he, he's even spoken about it. He talked about how when he, when he was writing The Red Wedding, he had to like wait to do it at the very end because he, he knew he had to do it. Yeah, but It was just going to be so sad. And he was so attached to these characters. Yeah. And then he brought back Catelyn Stark. So like...
1: I know. He pussied
0: out there. Let's be real. Alright,
1: well we're digressing hard. Super digressing. Anyway, um... So that's
0: my argument. Great. Mervyn Peak is amazing. Everyone needs to read them if they care about 20th century literature. Awesome. Full
1: stop. So, for my classics pick, I'm doing the first novel ever. <laughs> El Ingenioso Hidalgo Don Quixote de la Mancha. De la Mancha. Also known as... The ingenious nobleman, Sir Quixote of La Mancha, also known as Don Quixote.
0: Every time I hear it, when you say it, just you, I hear Donkey.
1: Donkey. Hote. Hote. <laughs> I did. Ah! Yeah, so this is the first novel ever. It's a Spanish novel by Miguel Cervantes um it's in two volumes originally it's now published as one big old book um but the first two volumes were initially published in 1605 and 1615 so yeah if i fucked that book that'd be creepy
0: (laughs) or it would be like a twilight-esque thing and it'd be very
1: hot yeah so it's really a founding work of modern literature as we know it um (laughs) <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> literally the foundation. It's literally the foundation of literature. Therefore, founding literary work. So it follows this guy... What does he start out as? Qu- 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 Quijano? I think? Alonzo Quijano? I don't know. We'll go with that. Um, he's a nobleman, And he reads so many of these... Uh, chivalrous, chival- Romances? Sh- yeah, chivalric. Mm-hmm. Chivalric, is that yes. how you say it? Yes. I'm just like on that hard to pronounce words yeah, right now. Yeah,
0: chivalric romance.
1: Chivalric romances. That he like pretty much decides he wants to live in one and he wants to right all these wrongs. Kind of like that Earl show. <laughs> Do you remember that show? What? Where that guy like wins the lottery and then he loses the ticket and he like makes a list. Of, like, all the people.
0: Oh. Something Earl. Yeah, right? my name is Earl. My
1: name is Earl. Very
0: different. He's writing his own wrongs.
1: Yeah. So, anyway. Um, Quixote, or Quijano if that's even right. I don't know. Um, changes his name to Don Quixote. <laughs> Don Quixote. Now I can hear that. Um, and he wants to, like, revive chivalry. Re- undo wrongs and, like, bring justice to the world. Um, when I was sort of reviewing this I was imagining if like somebody did this today but with like modern romances like (laughs) they read too many like cvs paperbacks and then we're like I'm gonna go like find a pool boy and like (laughs) well
0: it's a romance and it I know it's just
1: funny (laughs) um so he recruits uh Sancho Panza who is a farmer and he becomes his squire (laughs) and you know I guess it's a big boy He's a big, chunky man. He's a big boy. So, I, if you're, I guess if you're Don Quixote, or not if you're Don Quixote, but if you're in these books, like, he would be, you know, Don Quixote's the nobleman, and he would be, like, the dumb farmer, but actually he's the smarter one, because he's sort of keeping Quixote, like, tethered to reality, or trying to. <laughs> yeah, trying. Very deeply trying to, uh, but he's much more level-headed, and he's sort of the voice of reason. Don Quixote just like refuses to see the world for what it is and just is determined to live in this fantasy. So obviously, because it is a founding, the founding work of literature, uh, Cervantes uses a lot of techniques that become super common later on as the novel becomes the novel. So stuff like realism. Which happened when? Now, like six? Six? I don't know.
0: The novel became the pre. After premier. this. Yeah, do you, but do you know when?
1: 1615.
0: No, not when that was published. When did the novel become the premier work?
1: I don't know, just writing. tell me.
0: 19th century. Okay, Mutual I'm not a
1: writer. I'm, I'm a musician. No, I know.
0: I'm just giving the information so the hey, listeners Thank now. you. I was wondering so, if you looked it up.
1: No, I did not. Okay,
0: Victorian England. Was 1800s? Living. Yeah, it was It was like the, when. if you think about like Les Mis and that that era, Dumas, that stuff, that's all okay. 1850s.
1: Voltaire. That's Les Mis, isn't it? You sure? 100%. Alright, anyway. Who wrote Les Mis? I'll tell you. Oh, Jean-Paul. No. Nope. It's not Voltaire. <laughs> Two, four, six, so oh, one. <laughs> um, anyway, while you're looking that up. Yeah, so realism. Um, but my favorite aspect and the aspect that I want to talk about as to why that I brought this book is the metafiction that he uses. Um, so he says that the first chapters are taken from the archive of La Mancha and that the rest were translated from Arabic by this, um, Muslim or Moorish writer. Victor Hugo. Victor Hugo. Cool. Thank you. Voltaire. Who the fuck am I? Um, so saying that it came from this source, as opposed to just, here's the book I wrote, um, implies factuality and gives it credibility. And it's sort of, I guess it was common in, like, fairy tales to be, like, you know, once upon a time. So, like, this thing actually happened. Or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, this is something that, you know, this is something that happened. Um, So he says that he discovered the manuscript by chance and then hired someone to translate it to Spanish. And he, for the rest of the novel, presents himself as no more than the editor. Uh, So he's saying this is something that really happened. I didn't write this. He also insists that the Arabic version is the only real version, and everything else is a fraud, including this translation. Uh, not this translation, not the English one, but the Spanish one that he wrote.
0: You're pointing. No one can see you pointing. Okay,
1: I'm holding the book. <laughs> um, so I think the reason that he does this, besides it just being a cool you know, trick of the trade or what becomes a trade, is that the book is sort of attacking... The land of make believe, and you can't really do that with a work of fiction, or it would be it would be harder to do that with a work of fiction. And I also think that Quixote might be a stand-in for Cervantes himself, right? Because, you know, as a writer, he's obviously engrossed in literature and you know, fiction. So I think maybe he sort of sees himself as that character. I don't know. I think it's cool to think about. So it's also interesting to think about like where he's claiming this Arabic author got this story from because he never shows up in the book himself. Like he's not he's not actually seeing any of this happen. So who is like, is he a combination of characters that's like Sancho Panza trying to sort of hold the mirror up to Quixote and say like, no, it's just a windmill, you know, like, I don't know. What do you think?
0: um well i think that this novel is i think it i think this novel is a political work i don't think it has anything to do with metafiction i think it has to do with the end of feudalism and it's a reference to the like aristocratic holding on to the feudal the ridiculous in cervante's opinion feudal beliefs and structures and Hmm. so i think it's like a work of of, like, economic, political satire. Interesting. Which I think is, is, like, why it's so important. Because it came in this, like, very liminal period in history mm-hmm. where the whole world was shifting from a feudal economy to a mercantilist economy, which, uh, it's, like, a the vast difference in how people interact. And it's the real beginning of the existence of capital, of huh. money, where people trade cha- where money changes hands uh, for goods rather than people subsistence farming or trading goods for other goods. Yeah. Use value. Um, so this is a novel that came about right at the like cusp of real mercant cusp. Cusp. Cusp of real mercantilism in Spain cool. and like its even its form is a break from either the, like, classical form of epic poetry or the the play, or really anything that came before it. It's a, it's, so it's a, the form of it, everything is a comment on the uh, stagnant economic modality of Quixote himself. I don't think Cervantes is Quixote. I think Cervantes thinks Quixote is ridiculous and in... Like he's kind of painted in a in a beautiful rosy light in the right. novel, but when you read it a little closer, I think it's he's sad. evil. It's
1: sad. Oh, no, really? I think he's
0: evil. Yeah. I think well huh. because the whole idea is that like when mercantilism began, which is right where this is being written, people started to have access to certain freedoms. Like they weren't serfs anymore mm-hmm. and weren't bound to the land, and they existed in a complete. Uh, they, they went from being the property of the landowner to being to some minor extent a little freer and this came because of the black plague blah 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 whatever this is not a show about that but the point is that Quixote looks back on this period of absolute monstrosity and uh, sees it as beautiful and wonderful and gorgeous and wants to recreate this world and by showing him as ridiculous it's pointing the finger at the aristocrats and the kings and all of the people who were still like that who yeah. still wanted to control people now this is not a metafictional reading this is a uh, political or marxist yeah. reading but it's i think that
1: well i think on that on that note too like it's sort of the way that it's universal and it, you know everybody can sort of associate with it it's also like you were talking about like a really local to like not only the time period yeah. but also where it was written yep. and like what was happening um, in that time and like the narrative is just sort of geared towards like mass appeal
0: yeah it's very hyper i think it's a hyper specific novel in terms of like but it's a it's hyper specific in like the universal way we're like right yeah. now we we're, we're going through similar transitions right where the political establishment exists in this kind of formalized nostalgia for a time before
1: make it great again. Yeah.
0: Before what Make could, Quixote could sane be. again. Yeah. Well make Quixote Quixote again.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> like uh they don't wanna cha- they don't want to change Quixote. They wanna change the world to make it look like Quixote's right world. They want the dragons, even though the dragons never existed. Um, and, and I
1: think also, like, in a time when everything was hyper-religious, like, this as, if not an anti-religious work, at least, like, an, an unreligious work. I
0: think that it's a, it's a mischaracterization to consider. And, like, because religion was a, was a given, but it wasn't, I don't think people were more religious than they are now. I think, <laughs> I think you'd be surprised when you, like, look at the, like, even everyone, it, it was just, like, a cultural part of the moment-to-moment life that you went to church. But most people weren't even literate. So, like, they were superstitious in the same way that everyone is still and always will be. So, like, God and Jesus and all that stuff just replaced, like, Druidic sprites. Mm. And in some places, they never did. Um, So I I think that this is a really accurate... But I think it's a very pointed political work. That's why, Mm. like, to someone like Cervantes, this wouldn't be that far distant. Uh, Like his parents, the parents of his parents would remember not having the ability to move through different places and, like, the, the world around him was shifting very fast. So to make a character want to go back when so many people for the first time were being able to, like, be free, I think is a very, like, especially when it came out, would have been, like, a like a pretty old nose-thumbing at the, mm. the aristocracy to a pretty, pretty, like, bold, ridiculous extent. Yeah. Like a, like a Jonathan Swift level extent to some extent, but like saying extent a lot. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, like, I, that's why I don't No, I just meta- have a
1: couple, a yeah. couple more things, just um continuing with the metafiction, just like my, some of my favorite mm-hmm. spots that he used, it's, you know, in the beginning with the authorship and then in part two, which, like I said, it didn't originally come out at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and in part two, everyone in this universe has read part one and, like, knows about it. So Quixote and Sancho Panza are, like, running into people that, like, know the stories and there are people creating unauthorized sequels and it's just, like, a funny little thing that, like, you know, how many authors to this day use metafiction? You know, it's just... It's crazy that something like that has persisted this long through the, the genre. So it, like... I just think it gives this really awesome juxtaposition between like romance and reality and like balance and the opposition of the two. And for, I guess what becomes a narrative arc of just what you need in a book, it ha- it's the really the first work that has um, like a real psychological evolution of the characters, which is kind of sad in the end. Um, I don't, I guess no spoilers, even though it's three hundred, four hundred years no old. No spoilers. Okay. Um. So, but it, it's just like they're just fun little like vignettes and stories, and they're sort of droll, you know. Mm, um, very droll. I, so the, I, I, I
0: question whether it has the only the or even the first psychological growth of characters in a story.
1: Oh, I don't know. Uh, but I'm gonna say that um and the the episodic format we can have like a corrections corner next time um (laughs) the episodic format makes it really fast paced to read even though it's a huge book um like I said it just came up on the 40th the 40th 400th anniversary yep um Stevans,
0: professor at Amherst College professor at
1: Amherst College wrote the um foreword to this edition and um He points out something cool that I think is, like, interesting to just the theme that we're doing, which is that um, classics do not have to be perfect novels. In fact, like, the defective nature of them is what makes the readers look at their own frailty and sort of look at reality and associate better with them. Um, Even, you know, Cervantes was, like, 60 when this was published. So don't feel so bad about being 25 and... Sitting here recording a podcast it's for a, five friends. It's the
0: classic picaresque novel.
1: Yeah, so that's that's my classic of classics. It's a it's a classic. It's a classic in
0: terms of novels. I went
1: way back.
0: You can't you can't get more clear. Yeah. Um. So next. Uh. Oh, this is a good one. This is so a so every game. every
1: episode. No, no, this Michael isn't... writes a little outline, and most of the time I am. To be honest, shocked and appalled at what he will put on Thank there, you. Um, as you saw with the the sponsor.
0: For I do me, my best. so. But we have a little game that I put in, um, and Cynthia. Uh, the name of the game is the game. So <laughs> uh, I think you should go first. Can you fart? Try right now.
1: I don't want to poop myself. Can you man. fart? Try right now. No.
0: Come on. No. That wasn't a real try. I'm
1: even, you know, I'm even drinking. Michael uh, Michael asked what I wanted to drink, and I said, canned rosé, please.
0: No, you said rosé in a can, <laughs> which is even worse.
1: Um, it's just become really my summer beverage. Probably going to be my year-long beverage, but it's called Babe.
0: Babe.
1: Babe rosé with bubbles, and um, it's bottled by Yes Queen. Yas Queen. And on the side it says... <clears throat> Hey, you guys, you look great. Love your face. Have you lost weight? Let's be honest. Somebody had to create a bubbly rosé that was delicious. And most of all, so us. You're welcome. Love you, miss you, hate you, love you, mean it.
0: Oh my God, and it's only like one calorie. I
1: know. Oh my God. Can you fart? Oh my god
0: <laughs> Yes I can.
1: Michael can also burp on command any at any second. Any second. And he asked me to try at work and I just drank a protein shake and I nearly vomited. So
0: by the way, I won that.
1: Yeah. I mean, did you though? I did. All I right. did. You think I did? Too? You guys can get back to me and let me know if that's a
0: <laughs> good trait to have. Being able to no, I'm talking about being able to fart. Yeah, I know. I was very I didn't think I could but
1: we did eat pizza and I you went, drink you're drinking a beer i'm well, not drinking anything oh you drank a beer i drank a beer um all right so
0: okay uh, what's what's
1: going on with you what are we going to talk about
0: well since we were last here we both found our wedding venues. we
1: both booked our weddings yeah. we're getting married to each other we booked our wedding yes no our wedding oh, <laughs> my, our wedding. God. oh, my, god. oh my god yeah john and rachel are together now it's fine no they're not <laughs> they'd be too nice no
0: no one would ever be able to fuck the other one <laughs> Oh my excuse God! Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. No, Just please, forever. you first. No, you first. No, you first. No, you first. <laughs> um, Just like this, it, it, like eternal. Yeah.
1: What else do we want to talk about? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't. I read. Know. Oh, so uh, this is pertinent because it's something that I gave a comma, and then I read it, and it was excellent. Um, The Changeling by um, Victor Laval. Absolutely amazing. Killer. Read it, everyone. Yeah. Um,
0: as usual, I was. Right. Okay. It was, that novel's great.
1: It is excellent. I'm
0: reading, like, a gajillion books right now.
1: I've been reading more voraciously than usual.
0: Uh, Like, my my problem right now is I'm feeling very omnivorous in what I'm interested in. So, like, I'm reading theory and I'm reading, like, random political stuff. Mm -hmm. And then a novel, and another novel, and a fantasy novel, and another a fantasy novel. I'm doing this another all, one. And then I'm doing this all at the same time, so like, I'll get like 70 pages into something, and then like switch, and then go back, and then switch. So I'm not finishing anything, but I'm reading a lot. Yeah. I'm doing a lot of research for something I'm writing. It's just been crazy.
1: I've been doing a lot of score study at work. Yes, which um, you're about
0: to no longer be at.
1: I will still... Don't worry, y'all. I'll still be slagging so only books. So
0: only one of us will be... Um, no, seller. I'll still be
1: slanging books, book just slang. less frequently. Occasional um, Taking a brief sabbat. Sibs. <laughs> a brief sabbat. Um. Sib-A-L. Taking a break to do some gigs, Geek. go some places, and then I'll be back for textbook rush.
0: Yep. And, and yeah, Rachel and I are, uh, along with planning our wedding, um, planning some trips one likely to Niagara Falls. That one I think is for sure. Uh, the other one, Maybes, a bunch of our friends, not you, uh, are going to New Orleans and they want us to come. Wow, you're a dick. Well, you're not the person who are, is planning this. Wow,
1: you could have told me off air.
0: But here's the thing. I don't think we're going to go because okay, we're
1: broke. Yeah, same. Because um, we just booked and, weddings. Yeah, and,
0: and Rachel's going to Madagascar. Yes. All of August, and my friend Hagen's coming into town, and maybe he will be a guest on the podcast. Yeah, let's do it. Maybe. Um, anything else you want to
1: talk about? Something fun?
0: Um, can you say the alphabet backwards?
1: Um, no. <laughs> really? Yeah, really. Try. Z, Y x w v this is gonna take a really long time
0: okay uh, that's fine
1: every time i shelve a book i have to like think about oh, it oh I,
0: I sing it every time A B C D E F G H R J K L L. anyway um, yeah anything Down else no besides besides me Next sipping on, time, sipping on my bre- won't you sing with
1: me, me. <laughs> i had to finish it i'm sorry okay it's fine
0: so comma time drum roll please so first, I get to give you one because we go backwards.
1: Mm-hmm. We go backwards, backwards. We were touch, pooping back and forth touch, forever.
0: Touch. Um, so before I do anything, I would like to state that the metafictional reading of *Quixote* is not one that I agree with. I think that because it's the first novel, you can't read it in comparison to other novels because it doesn't have, uh, it didn't have access to to that, and I think the tools that he used were kind of blunt instruments that he was trying out because there was literally nothing. It was a, like, tabula rasa, which I missed. Yeah, it's just
1: my favorite little thing is that, like, him trying to be like, I'm not the author of this.
0: Which was kind of common. It was very common. Uh, I mean, go back to the muse. It was like, the muse expired, so here it is. And, like, uh, even in, like, the Canterbury Tales, it's like, I heard this story. Um, so it, I mean it's a kind of common thing and it's like, but it, like thinking of it as a postmodern novel and reading it in the same way I feel is like I prefer the historical readings of it because I think that it really gives a, a deep insight and makes you question your relationship to Quixote because to us medieval Europe is kind of beautiful and castellan and filled with heroes and villains but to them it was a very it's like it, it's like World War II it yeah. was right there, and, like, the years of the plague are not that far removed from the 17th century to the point where, like, the the world is pretty afraid that it's going to happen again, um, and it was because of the plague, as I said earlier, that we have the world today. So, I'm going to give you the comma, because Quixote yeah. is, that's a dank book, and it's, dank. it's uh, you know, one of my favorite novels. Like, how am I not going to give it to yeah. you? But I do disagree with your reading, and I think that, um, well, that there are other there are other theories that are worth checking into if you want to read it again. Just
1: be glad I I, I will read it again. Just be glad I didn't like bring up Paul Oster and yeah. David Foster Wallace. Yeah, or, they have nothing interesting to so. say about Kyote
0: whatsoever.
1: But as Charlie says, I don't know. <laughs>
0: well, okay, sure. Yes, as Charlie says. Dead air. <laughs> All right, so it's your turn.
1: Um, yeah, you get the comma. You. It sounds really dope. Um, I really like the thought of there being sort of an anti-Tolkien, um, that authors sort of use as like a refuge, um, like an oasis. Yeah, like in the in the little desert, they're like, oh, here's peak. Um, yeah, hey, it Merv. sounds really great. <laughs> hey, Merv. It sounds really cool. Um, I will definitely check it out and the illustrations look dope too. Yeah. So. I
0: also have a first edition which I got I'm shocked at Grammatter. Really. It was so cheap. That's awesome. Because people don't here's the thing, like if you want a first edition Tolkien, it's like ten, yeah. fifteen thousand dollars. But because nobody knows about this novel, a first edition was twenty five bucks for like a good condition with the slip cover first edition of Mervyn Peak. It's gorgeous. That's crazy. It's like the forty six printing. It is so pretty. Damn. Mm, yeah, I got,
1: a, I got a first edition of that Don Quixote, you know. Of Don Quixote. Yeah, it's... um just On a, parchment. It's just dust. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right, so um, now what I wrote for us to do is that Cynthia cries uncontrollably while Michael does nothing. <laughs> so uh, please uh, enjoy.
1: Again today? <laughs> I can't.
0: Come on. I can't. A little more.
1: You know, I'm just too depressed to cry <laughs> on command.
0: Solid. I
1: feel nothing. Solid.
0: So, um, yeah, that's that's it. So, as always. Like this shit. Yeah, like, subscribe, do something. Oh, things. wait. What? Fuck. Fuck, your book. Your book. What? What is it? What did you say fuck? We
1: didn't say it. We didn't say what? Fuck. Your book.
0: When, what do you mean we didn't say that?
1: We didn't say it with the comma.
0: We did earlier.
1: I know, but oh, I mean for well, each we other. Okay,
0: fuck. Your book.
1: Fuck your book.
0: Uh, but we're on the end part. so right. Go fuck yourself. Okay. Go fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself. Hello. Find, I love hated the world has to roll. Why are we gonna sing the theme song when we put it at love the end? Me <laughs> and the Let me find all the reasons you're
1: the